0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. <laughs> this week. Germany-based American writer and literary phenomenon Nell Zink on her pair of novels The Wall Creeper and Miss Laid. Today I'm talking to Nell Zink and at this point normally I read out a little intro blurb and I've got two today. So Nell Zink was born in 1964 in Southern California and grew up in rural Virginia. She attended Stuart Hall School and the College of William and Mary where she majored in philosophy. Rather late in life... She got a Doctorate in Media Studies from the University of Turbigen, Germany. She works as a translator and she lives in Bad Belzig, south of Berlin. But
2: I don't work as a translator, I'm a writer now.
1: But also in the past, Nelzink worked in the construction, pharmaceutical and software industries and as a writer, she founded an indie rock fanzine in the 1990s, and her work has appeared in various publications, including N1. And she's the author of two recently published novels, The War Creeper and Mislaid. And the reason I wanted to read both of those blurbs, the second one from the book, is because they sort of explain quite a lot. They're still quite inadequate in explaining your rather interesting life story. Does it really also... say I live in Berlin? That one does. In the book? Zink lives in Berlin.
2: Oh I guess I should have proofread that after all.
1: Oh yeah, because you don't live in Berlin. No. You live south of Berlin. <laughs> I live
2: south of Berlin, but in our south in Bad Belzig. I think to um to to, to anyone in England it.
1: or America that distinction ah. probably isn't very important. And maybe I'll make it to Berlin one of these days. <laughs> well let's talk about how you um how you ended up south of Berlin first of all. Let's talk about how you got there and then we'll talk about how you became a writer.
2: Well, I was first in Germany in 1983, and that's a while ago now, <clears throat> but I, I went there for no good reason, like, after my sophomore year of college in the summertime, and I ended up staying for an extra six months or so until, like, the following March, and learning German. And I kept up with it, mm-hmm. simply because I there were a lot of German writers I liked. I, I had learned Spanish in school, but somehow didn't find myself voluntarily reading a lot of Spanish language literature, whereas with German, there was just so much that I liked, you know, this Robert Musel and Kafka and stuff. So mm-hmm. I was reading a lot of German in my free time in the U.S., and then I had made these German friends, so I kept coming back to Germany. And southwestern Germany, nowhere near Berlin. And there was a wall and all that back then. So I, uh, in the year 2000, I was sort of at loose ends, um, not sure what I, where I wanted to be, and a friend of mine in Germany, in, in Tübingen, mm-hmm. near Stuttgart in the southwest, was just moving out of her room. So I thought, oh, I'll take her room. So I moved there and not really intending to stay forever. Maybe I sort of had a five-year plan. I thought I would sort of goof off for a year and then maybe look for work. But I ended up goofing off for way more than a year and eventually not even looking for work. I just had people realize that I could speak both German and English and they began to offer me translating jobs. So I ended up staying. And then about a little more than two years ago, I moved to northeastern Germany, which is radically different.
1: And so you were translating, so you were writing to a certain no, 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 extent.
2: No, no, no. R- writing is when you make stuff up. You were working with you know, words. Ev- ev- no, everybody who has the privilege of writing a caption for a picture in the newspaper is way more of a writer than you are as a translator. Mm-hmm. You know, a translator, your, your job is to conscientiously recreate the work of someone else in a foreign language. It's very, very menial
1: work. <laughs> but there was some times where you were... I mentioned the, the the fanzine. Yeah,
2: it was called Animal Review. Animal Review. Yeah, that was that's ancient history. That was way back in the 90s, that era. Mm-hmm. You may remember. I do remember the yeah, 90s. yeah? Okay, that's yeah. Good.
1: I wasn't a reader of Animal Review, as it, as no, it turns yeah. out not many people were.
2: No, it was only... It had a circulation of about 80. But, it, it you know, it was... 80 of the right people and I sent it to people who also did fanzines you you you'd make these fanzines mm-hmm. to trade for other fanzines and for record labels so they'll send you records CDs and singles and mm-hmm. LPs and stuff back then there wasn't this vinyl craze so it was mostly CDs and then uh, 45 RPM singles and then we'd review them
1: so at what point did you actually start writing making stuff up with words
2: well I had a- always been doing that but pretty much in secret when I started Animal Review as a music fanzine. Mm -hmm. I started putting a short story in every issue from issue one on. I always would write a little story about an animal. Uh, You know, an animal adrift in Mm -hmm. the human world. I I still like those stories a lot. I'm hoping they might be published as a collection someday.
1: But there's a point where you you basically... You write a novel, the novel which is the Hebrew translation.
2: Oh, yeah. I I did sit down in 1998... And write a novel for a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, at the time I didn't know him very well, but I liked him a lot. I could tell he was all right. And um, he had written a novel called Sailing Towards the Sunset, and Mm -hmm. I had gone to the awards ceremony where it received a prestigious award for Hebrew literature. And my Hebrew was really weak. It still is. So, like, even the plot summary, I only understood about half of it. Mm
1: So you basically rewrote
2: it. So I I really wanted to read it because such a nice guy had written it, but I couldn't because it was in very high literary Hebrew. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just write (laughs) write a translation of it for his amusement. Based on, I started off just by doing my best to translate the first couple of sentences, Mm -hmm. which just an absolute disaster. And then I went off went on from there, you know. And when I had sixty thousand words, I stopped because that's you know that's long enough to be a novel.
1: And, but it was basically, you completely rewrote the thing, it was a completely different story. Oh yeah, to what the,
2: because I, I couldn't even understand the plot summary, and God knows I didn't ask him, because he occasionally would uh, tell me if I had gotten something right, like I put an albatross in my book, and he wrote back and said, there's an albatross in my book too! <laughs> <laughs> so, so occasionally there were coincidences, things would overlap by accident.
1: But fundamentally it was about, it was about a Selkie, I don't know, Celtic mythological figure half seal half woman
2: well in the parts of the plot summary that I had understood it was clear that there was an Israeli spy a mm-hmm. Mossad agent who goes to the Shetland Islands and becomes involved with a woman named Mary that's really all I knew and so when I thought about the Shetland Islands I got all mixed up of course but I thought well maybe they have Selkies there maybe Selkies are Irish I don't know so <laughs> still, uh, so I made her be a Selkie from the Shetland Islands and she's uh, you know, been out of the water for quite a while because she has this taste for, for human men and mm-hmm. she you know, does better with them if she appears to be human. But she keeps her skin close at hand in case she wants to go back into the water. But she really falls hard for this Israeli spy because he's, a, he's sort of a romantic figure. He, he's, he's not really devoted to his mission, but he just wants to keep his job, so he goes through the motions.
1: People might be familiar with the with the story of um, Jonathan Franson's parts in your work getting to publication, which we can talk about in a moment. But this, that book, was the first one you sort of sent to him, and and he attempted to get published. Is that right?
2: Well, it's not quite. It, you know, the truth is so complicated that no one makes sense of it. No matter how many times I tell it to how many people. Mm-hmm. I, no one can get it straight, but the... I mean, I wrote The Wall Creeper. I suppose the first fiction of mine he ever read was the about the first third of The Wall Creeper, mm-hmm. which I wrote in, in four days and sent to him. You know, mostly as a proof of concept because yeah. he, had, he had been getting on my nerves saying, why don't you write fiction? Why don't you write fiction? You should try writing some fiction. But he didn't ask to see my fiction. He didn't believe I had any fiction. So I... Just to prove the point that I could actually write fiction if mm-hmm. I wanted to. I sat down and wrote the first third of The Wall Creeper in a couple days and sent it to him. And his reaction was very positive, but not, but also very Fransonian. <laughs> it was like, uh, this is very accomplished. Tell me if you ever finish it. If it gets mm-hmm. to novel length, let me know. You know, so I thought, okay, whatever. And, um ended up shortly after that uh, finishing it, but I never did send it to him. Mm -hmm. And it was the following summer, after certain other events had transpired, that I sent uh, him, still not sailing towards the sunset, I sent him something else, a novella called European story for Avner Schatz, mm-hmm. also written for Avner. Yeah, and so a similar, a similar and thing. And the reason I sent him that was because I had written that and deleted it and forgotten all about it and just assumed it was crap. I remembered vaguely. I remembered having written it, but I didn't remember it being good. And then I found a printout of it in my mother's house. She was, you know, in, in the hospital. And I found her printout of it, and I was blown away. It's really, really funny. I love it. I love all, all of them, but European story for Avner Schatz is extremely funny. I was laughing my ass off. And, and I was so amused that I asked Avner if he, if he still had a file of it. And he said, yes, of course, I saved everything you sent me. So I sent, I sent that to Franson. And, and like, I don't know, a few weeks or a month later, I got back an email from him. I mean, we were, we were in touch, but he, he read this. And suddenly he started to respect me, I think because his response to that manuscript, well, I think when he realized that I wasn't kidding, that I wasn't lying, that mm-hmm. it really was true that I wrote these things that were quite decent, quite publishable, and that I would just delete them and forget about them, I guess mm-hmm. he thought I was kidding. And that's when he said, send me everything you've got. And that's when I sent him Sailing Towards the Sunset by Shots, mm-hmm. Um which he liked enough to try to get it published.
0: I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com
1: So was that one just more complete or was it just because he, he preferred that one? Well, it's,
2: it's more complete, it's longer but it's also very, it's sort of sweeter and warmer and more vulnerable, partly because it really was written mm-hmm. as just a series of letters every day Yeah, and it's like 24 letters uh, written in 24 days in December, like an advent calendar. So it There's a lot of personal stuff in it and it's very charming and cute in a way that my... When I know a bazillion people are going to be reading something, I don't tend... Not yet, at least. Maybe the last thing I wrote. Mm -hmm. I'm getting more used to the idea of people reading my work and I'm getting more open and relaxed about it and Mm -hmm. not as scared of people. But there are plenty of reasons to be a little bit cautious and circumspect
1: about what you tell the world. We'll, we'll move on to talk about the two novels. I'm I, in a similar position to and I've read about a third of The Wall Creeper, but I've, I've read all of Miss Laid, so in this interview we'll talk yeah. more about Miss Laid. But um, you just mentioned, first of all, we'll, we'll talk about what The Wall Creeper's about first. Um, you mentioned that you, know, you tossed off in three days something to send to him. Yeah. Something to send to him to prove that you could write... And indeed, that seems to be throughout reading about your work a theme that you write very quickly. Let's just talk about that that idea that technique of writing stuff that quickly you certainly can't tell reading the novel. they don't seem like a you know that sort of stream of consciousness first thing that's come out put down on on paper writing so does that how does that work for you writing at that speed?
2: I think it works, I guess either because I'm talented or because I practiced a lot but I or maybe because I don't like suspense mm-hmm. I, I tend to keep things fast paced keep things moving because it, it like bothers me when I'm writing to have some even a minor climactic event and write it and wait to write it the next day it like bugs me I would rather you know resolve the mm-hmm. tension as fast as I can. <laughs> I don't know, it might be a habit I got into uh, from writing while working as a translator, mm-hmm. because they're always always doing project based work. So that when you do, um, so so that when I had spare time, I never knew when when it was going to be over. You know, I would start writing, and at any time, a customer could could show up and say, "Oh, translate this unbelievably boring and stupid eighty page document." And I would have to drop everything I was writing and do it because you, you can't say no to freelance customers. You know, you'll never see them again yeah. if you say no even once. So maybe it was that time pressure. And uh, unfortunately, there's this analogy arising in my mind to that um, one thing they say about premature ejaculation in in men is that they'll get trained to it if they're uh, if they have like. Uh, siblings or parents who spy on them and so they have to uh, masturbate like really quickly in the bathroom or like real fast you know before they go to sleep or something and make sure nobody catches them so then they end up in a sexual situation Mm -hmm. with a woman completely trained to come Mm -hmm. as fast as they can and that that this can be unlearned Uh, you know I don't want to
1: can you unlearn writing you know, quickly? But, uh,
2: but I hope no one listens to this podcast because probably every critic who <gasps> talks about me for the rest of my life will compare my short novels to premature ejaculation, and there I'll be. But
1: well, how to what extent that that first third of the wall creeper that Jonathan Franson read when you you tossed it out in four days and sent it over to him. How much of that is the same as the as the third I've read, the, the published novel? How much of that first, I say, first draft? How much of that first draft would survive into the into the finished uh, novel? Uh,
2: um, all of it. I don't all think I it. changed a single word, and I mm-hmm. don't think uh, Danielle at the Dorothy Project she had she had a couple line edits. She did not touch my draft of The Wall Creeper. I mean, the, they publish very arty stuff, mostly at Dorothea Publishing Project, so that, um, you know, my, I'm really relatively coherent and comprehensible. Mm-hmm. So she, she had just about no changes. And that first, that first third, when I was writing the rest, I didn't look at it. I was so ashamed and embarrassed of what I had done that, that I, and I wrote the rest of the book sort of as penance for trying to show off. <laughs> without looking at it, but and edgy. it was only years later. That's why when I sent it to Dorothy Publishing Project, I was still assuming it was complete unreadable crap <laughs> because I had not read it myself.
1: You cannot tell, as, I, as I've already mentioned. You can't tell reading it that that's the case, and yet there's there's obviously this there's a sort of there's a prejudice against the idea that you might have written it quickly in that way. But I've only, well, as I said, I've, I haven't read. The end of the War Creeper. before no, I, I know it, like, it could it could go off after that. I seem to
2: me at this point that if I said I had spent eight years writing it, yeah. people would think it was better.
1: Which is insane. Which is which is crazy. They, they because... would think
2: it was better and I'm, I'm trying to establish a new paradigm mm. by talking about painters, you know, mm-hmm. like you know Picasso could sit down and draw a pony and he could do it better than other people because he'd had a lot of practice, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So you know, I've been practicing writing fiction for a long time, so is is it any wonder that I can do it in a relatively efficient manner? And, you know, God knows, since what am I the only one? I mean, other people, uh, you know, I mean, George Simonon, he writes faster than I do, or or Joyce Carol I don't know, I don't really know, but in any case, I think all writers, many writers write quite fast, and if you press them on it, they'll say, oh yes, I spent 10 years writing this Mm -hmm. book. But the actual time typing um, yeah. maybe about six months so
1: experiences from your <laughs> whole life go into go actually right, go into right. the into the book but that's not you weren't writing it 15 years ago when yeah, a, I
2: mean, a
1: similar if, thing might might have happened if,
2: if I had been a novelist you know by trade when I before the wall creeper came out I could give you a different answer I could say well I began researching the wall creeper which which to me is a really ugly idea the idea that i would go out and meet these conservationists and, mm-hmm. and talk to bird watchers because i was trying to exploit them to use in a novel like <laughs> ew <laughs> but you know that's that's what a novelist <clears throat> does like every, every new friend you make is like ooh, material as i, I think so, I'll,
1: I'll use you now <laughs> as i said i haven't i haven't finished The War Creeper, but I you know I've read Mislaid yes. and I loved it. I think it's it's wonderful and it's beautifully written and it's funny. Did you and like the end. The end, yeah, the end is great. <laughs> the end works really well. It has this it's it, you know, sort of a Shakespearean comedy end. Um and it exists as itself, it's an artifact and were, I was reading an interview of you in the Guardian where uh, the little uh, profile of you in the Guardian where you know the, the the writer of that said, you know, this book's great but imagine Imagine how much better it would have been if you'd have taken more time over it. And I thought she,
2: she thinks I'm a premature ejaculator. Yeah.
1: And I thought that's that's wrong. It would not be. It would be different, perhaps. Yeah. But it would not be this thing. It would not be this brilliant, perfect thing that exists in its form now.
2: You know, I I think I know what you're talking about because I do think there there are places. Where a novelist can elaborate, and many novelists elaborate at really punishing length, and I write possibly more like a short story writer, Mm -hmm. except I do it, you know, for seventy thousand words in a row. Yeah, yeah. And I I should say these both of these books are quite short. Economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These these are not long novels, and at the same time, when I I look at other people's long novels, many of them aren't long novels either. They're Eighty-page no- novellas stuck together with tape <laughs> and glue. Um, you know, you know, with uh, eighty-page sections. Mine are longer than eighty pages. <laughs>
1: Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Nell Zink, and we're talking about her novels, *The Wall Creeper* and *Mislaid*. And now let's talk about *The Wall Creeper* for a little. First of all, tell us. Well, tell us what it's about. What's the story of?
2: Uh, well, *The Wall Creeper* is about a young woman who just is very bright, but a bit directionless, like many young women. She marries a guy who's a little more purposeful because his secret obsession is bird watching and uh, because he is a pharmaceutical researcher uh, she ends up moving with him to Bern, switzerland where they acquire a unique pet called a wall creeper which is a a bird that's a very common bird but very hard to see because it breeds very high above the tree line in rocky outcroppings or rock faces high in the Alps but they have one in their home and you know it's hard for me to say what that book is about because (laughs) you you give it a try
1: (laughs) Um, well shall I shall I try and say what it's about having only read a third of it yeah so Tiffany and Stephen they they live in a flat in Bern Um, there's various Infidelities. There's a quite a, a you know a long discussion over the, the merits of uh, anal sex in the first third. Of the yeah, she, the, the,
2: she does go a bit on a bit of a crusade against anal sex. But as I said, I, I wrote it for Francine, and, and I don't know if you've read Freedom, his book. But mm. there's you know there's a place in his heart for anal sex, obviously. And I asked him once, you know, well he no he volunteered the information. I, you know, I made a joke about it, and he said, "Well, I've had anal sex," and I was like. Well, I didn't even want to ask, because if, you know, if a man says that, he's kind of saying one thing, whereas if a woman says it, mm-hmm. she's saying another. Yeah. So we didn't go into detail. But in any case, I just wanted to clear up what I thought were some misconceptions about anal sex. So I admit this, you know, OK, it's a theme in the novel. OK, these things happen.
1: <laughs> um, the book was originally published under an imprint called Dorothy. Yes. Which, as you mentioned in the first half, is like sort of quite avant-garde uh, publication, originally published, I guess, for not very much money. What happened then? I mean, how, how was that received? Well... In the US, it's just... We're here, we talk, sorry, I should say, that I was, I'll just clarify that. We're talking here on the, on the release of both of these novels in the UK, but The War Creeper was released... Last year
2: in, in right. the U.S. In the U.S., The Wall Creeper came out last October mm-hmm. and Miss Laid came out this May. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Wall Creeper came out from this little tiny press. And it was very well received. It got two reviews in the New York Times, um, which just was life-changing. You know that, that second New York Times review that just catapulted me into the, you know, the upper echelons of, of writers. Mm-hmm. You know, After that, I could kind of throw my weight around. Because if I told people I thought I knew what I was doing, they had to believe me. So it was, um, it put me in a position of much greater power vis-à-vis my editors and everybody mm-hmm. else. That was very re- really nice, and I guess simply because of their connections uh, with the the publishing industry. The people who do Dorothea Publishing Project both have worked in publishing before, but are now employed by a university, and they just wanted to keep their hands and mm-hmm. you know stay stay connected with publishing. By doing this little sort of hobby like project with two books a year. Yeah.
1: But then suddenly you're you know, there's there's huge sums of money being bandied about.
2: Oh well, huge, it's you know
1: Well considerably bigger than the first one. Okay,
2: yes. But I think anybody who dreams of a big advance should dream really big. You know, don't dream of a couple hundred thousand. Dream of millions. That's what fantasy authors get, that's (laughs) what genre authors get. They get millions. And why? Because the tax man takes half and they pay it out to you in dribs and drabs over a period of years. So it's kind of just like having a, a regular middle class job mm-hmm. with a three or four year contract. It's not wealth. And so if you really want if you wanna buy a house or a rolls or something, you're gonna to have to not only get that advance but have a huge bestseller mm-hmm. and then take that take a big check and just turn around and buy something with it for cash because mm. you can't you can't get a mortgage with a book deal. You know it's only it's only income for two or three years.
1: But then they're not giving you that massive advance because they're nice. They're obviously anticipating no, like I th- a huge I th- bestseller. I think they're doing
2: it because they're nice. <laughs> really? <laughs> I can't think of it any other reason.
1: Well, I was going to say, you you know, one one of the things you mentioned previously was, you know, you hadn't necessarily published stuff before for a, for more than an audience of one because you never thought it was any good and thought anybody would want to read it. <laughs> then you publish, you know, a, a small... a novel for a small press, which becomes something of a phenomenon. Now there's a lot of money involved. That obviously puts a lot more pressure on you.
2: Well, it's pressure, but um, as... Uh... It's not that bad. Because I, mean, I think the publishers... Financially, the publishers are out of the woods way before I am. Mm-hmm. You know, They advance you X, and you have to earn back X to earn out, as the saying goes. But, you know, so it's like I have to sell... To start getting royalties above and beyond my advance, I have to sell 100,000 books or something. But for them to make money... The number is much smaller i don 't know i don 't want to say how much smaller because i 'm not sure mm-hmm. like, like and i don 't even know a rule of thumb someone said to me you know if if they advance you two hundred thousand and sell a hundred thousand copies involving including the paperback, they have a profit free and clear of three hundred thousand dollars but this was the person who told me that was the kind of person who adds six and eight and gets nineteen so <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really not sure whether it's true. In any case, it's all very mysterious, but, but you know, publishers stay in business one way or another, and, and it may be because they subsidise me to some degree, and it may be because they're making money off me. I, you know, I don't even know, really. I hope they're making money, because that's... Um, you know, I want to keep this job.
1: Let's talk about mislaid for a bit, then. So it's set or it starts, it, it, it goes over a few decades, but it sets in sort of 60s post-segregation rural Virginia which is where you grew up initially yeah, so let's talk about what was that place like when you were growing up. Well, the,
2: the, It's not post-segregation you know segregation was officially over but you know continued under other names mm-hmm. um, you know it, it officially ended in the 50s but then you know they instituted school voucher programs that you could go to any school you wanted, and you know, lo and behold, all the black children wanted to go to black schools, and all the white children wanted to go to white schools. Who know? You know, who knew? And so on. So, when I actually moved to Virginia, which is in like seventy one, as an eight year old, segregation, well, integration was relatively fresh and new, and the situation on the ground was that schools had tracking they had an academic track and a vocational track starting in you know pretty early grades and uh, you would have in any kind of enrichment program or in the academic track you would have your token black person to make the class integrated you have to had to have at least one person who was black but otherwise it would just be white all the superior institutions and the colleges were basically segregated even in the '80s, so that like at William and Mary, where I went, you had, yes, you had. There were a few black students, but there was also a partner institution that had been originally founded, I believe, as part of William and Mary, Old Dominion University, and it was basically it was the black school. That's where where black students went. So the situation was not not like uh, integration in in the rural North, where you had people in, really in contact with each other. <coughs> there was. Just completely different social spheres, different Masonic lodges, different churches, different everything for Black people and white people. So it was, you know, it was more like apartheid.
1: The books about, I mean, major theme is is identity and the the characters in it. Yeah. They swap both their sexual and racial identity quite freely, and yeah. um, both because sometimes they have to, but also just because they feel like it. Well, I'll ask, again, I ask you to.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host.
1: Say describe what the book is about if you can. If you can do better than with
2: the wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. It, it's uh well it concerns again a young woman. Peggy is her name and she is quite sure that she's a lesbian because of some confusing experiences she's had involving her gym teacher, but that doesn't stop her from getting the hots for a male professor. Mm-hmm. So when she goes away to college at a girls' school where she's gone specifically because it's a, a lesbian a heavily lesbian school, she gets sexually obsessed with a male poetry professor who also is generally gay. But since those lines weren't drawn quite so clearly back then, it was quite common for a gay man to have a wife and children, you know, and maybe you know meet up with guys at some wayside by the road every Friday or something, or go to a certain bar. But he didn't. He, did, he would have a gay lifestyle. He'd have a perfectly normal straight lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Well, th- well, this guy is is openly gay. Everybody yeah. knows he's gay, and at the same time. His homosexuality isn't something he chose. You know, he was, you know, abused as a child. I made that more explicit in early drafts. My editor wasn't crazy about it, so I took it out. But he's, you know, he might not be as gay as he thinks he is either. So these two people get together, and she gets pregnant. But, you know, socially, Lee Fleming, the poetry professor, has grown up as a gay man, and his, all his social contacts regard him as gay, and he's in a poetry scene that's heavily gay, mm-hmm. and it's impossible for him to distance himself from that life. So he doesn't really cut her a lot of slack for being a straight woman and boring, and, and she she's very unhappy in this marriage, you know, because they're really, it's not the best marriage. She gets pregnant again, but she... Because of her frustration in the marriage, she continues to think she's a lesbian, and you know maybe she is a lesbian it's just hard to tell if you don't actually have sex with anybody <laughs> what you really are you know these are These are experiences mm-hmm. that sometimes have to be tried to be rejected or mm-hmm. accepted, so she's kind of trapped there alone, trying to in a, in a permanent identity crisis. And finally, she just clears out. Uh, She wants to take both her kids and leave her husband, but her son is 10 and refuses to go. So she takes her daughter, who's only two or three, and hits the road. And her bright idea of how she can hide from her husband is by crossing the tracks. She'll just, by moving maybe a couple counties over and saying she's black, she'll stop having any social contact with anyone who might know her husband, Mm -hmm. period. And that's what she does.
1: And so she registers... Well, she basically steals the, um, or assumes the identity for a daughter of a dead black child.
2: Yeah, she's. Too, she figures she'll need a birth certificate to register her daughter for school. So mm-hmm. she goes to the county registrar and says she needs a birth certificate for a little girl named Karen Brown, who she knows is black and has died, and, and then gives her child this identity.
1: And yeah, I mean, they're both obviously white people.
2: Right. Well, she. That's the thing that, you know, people should be aware of, when I say it, it I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, Neil Denny, look, if your hair were maybe a little wavier, maybe if it were longer, you do not look really look much different from the first black governor of Virginia, Douglas Wilder. You know, he, was, he didn't look Danish. <laughs> you know, he didn't look like Leif Erikson, but uh, he was black by fiat mm-hmm. because he was from a black family from a family that had grown up under that had come up under segregation subject to all the discrimination and all the exclusion and all the bad treatment black people were subject to that was his family background but his appearance didn't tell you he was black mm-hmm. he had he had to communicate this and so peggy the protagonist of mislaid she has brown curly hair and brown eyes so she's really not that far off the mm-hmm. blackness spectrum. Her daughter on the other hand is really really pale with like silky blonde hair and is also black which you know raises suspicions in people's minds that maybe she's illegitimate or something mm-hmm. but you know they don't talk about it. You know maybe her dad was white but that doesn't make her any less black but because far- if you have a black parent mm. you you were black.
1: But fundamentally, the thing that makes you black in this situation, similar to, I mean, people in the UK would probably be more familiar with the old apartheid system in South Africa, the fact that you were black because the bureaucracy said you were black. Right, well,
2: apartheid was a little different because um, for people who were, I think, even from, there was uh, one sort of lighter-skinned native tribe that was considered coloured. And uh, South Asians were colored. Mm -hmm. I think if you were mixed, you could be colored. So there was a middle category, whereas in the segregated South, there were two categories, just two. And there was white, and there was not entirely white. Mm -hmm. So the reality that I was looking back on, relying on when I was writing Mislaid, was my memories of really crazy stuff that I thought growing up. For example, for example, I know that I thought, I, I put this line, I give this line to one of the characters about how maybe French people are black, because I wasn't sure, but the, the fact was, to me, white people were people who look more or less like me. You know, they're pink, they have light eyes, they have little thin lips and oval faces and then the first time I went to a foreign film and saw like, I don't know, Juliette Binoche or something, I thought is she white? Really? I'm not, I'm not kidding. I thought, oh is she, is she like one of those hot creole girls you read about? Because she had you know, full <clears throat> lips which was not a white thing. You know, white lips are like George Bush lips. But these are the thoughts of a of a a child and an adolescent mm-hmm. you know i'm sure if you ask even a, an adult white southern racist now whether he thinks white people can have full lips he'll say mm-hmm. yes but i was but i was thinking of my you know full lips are very trendy now <laughs> but in in my childhood this was you know you would really you would look at people and try just like as as though we were looking you know when kids will look at a dog and say oh i think it's part poodle and part dachshund with a little doberman pincher so we were really like little nazis <laughs> saying like oh i think she might be part black and part white with a little bit of maybe russian <sighs> I'm Hannah Fry, you're listening to
1: Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I'm sure it's not the first time this has come up, but you know this is quite pressing at the moment because yeah. of this uh Rachel Dahlschell. However you
2: pronounce it, I have no idea. I, have no idea. <laughs> I haven't watched any TV about it, so I couldn't tell you. And We'll call her Rachel DL.
1: Yeah, and um, actually, there's there's a line that nearly made me drop this book where you you actually say describing various different colours of black people in Virginia in the 1960s and something like even that you know famous case of the chairman of the NAACP. Yeah, I know. You actually say that. Yeah. Well, so this is clearly not something that's, <laughs> that's a new thing. No,
2: th- I was referring to Walter White, mm-hmm. who was the NAACP chairman. Through the mid fifties, from like the thirties to the mid fifties, for a long time, and he was blonde with blue eyes.
1: Identity, both you know, both sexual and racial identity, at the moment, and particularly in you know in an era of social media, which I don't know how sort of okay you're with away over there in, in Germany away from uh, the, away from the you know the american well, I literality have, I
2: do unfortunately shamefully
1: have a doctorate in media studies so yeah <laughs> so I, it, I know about social media so it's 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 interesting to see these i mean this is we i think in some respects the way you describe what the book is about about two people of different sexualities stuck in an unhappy marriage that that could make the book sound quite dour. It's not. It's really funny and rollicking, and and, and it's it well, was she, really... she
2: gets out of that marriage pretty fast. Sure, so that's like on this page four. <laughs> well, not quite.
1: But. but it's it's it was great to see those like what are quite you know really quite deeply important political themes of people's identities used in just in a really funny comedy. It seemed really refreshing. To me. Well, I think.
2: Um, to me identity is a heavy theme partly because i think it gets so tragically overemphasized you know human rights are not something that people have given to them as a birthright mm-hmm. they're an abstraction they're there's something that as a as a rational educated western you know that sounds bad but it's kind of true you know mm-hmm. talk to many people from other cultures who will say things oh yes i believe in in equal rights all men who are heads of families should be able to vote mm-hmm. okay the, the, you know this that's the, the, the idea that we have in western democracies that every person has a right an equal right to participate in how the, the government is run is really based on very abstract ideas that are not not dependent on how much how hard this person works to participate mm-hmm. or whether or not they are find a way of articulating their ideas or whether they uh, whether they you know achieve self actualization or something It just has to do with having your voice in a representative government and i think uh the when I see identity politics at work, it seems to Be sometimes distancing itself from that level of abstraction and and going down to a sort of tribal, village, anarchist ideal that we're, uh, you know, I'm going to find my tribe, find people who are just like me, and we're going to work together to have the kind of society we want Mm -hmm. in our little neighborhood or our little house, you know, basically our little ghetto, you know, for better or worse. You know, it's nice to be surrounded by people who are just like you, but. (laughs) But it it puts distance between you and that all-important abstraction, which is to say, I am not like other people, but there are certain rights that they should enjoy just as I do, and we can negotiate as a society what those rights are. So in in the book, I suppose I do put in a sort of implicit argument uh, against identity politics because identity can be so malleable. Whereas the the individual human being and its need to be free, his or her, you know, no, I guess its is better, right? In the, in the age of,
1: I yeah, you know. in this context, you know,
2: in this context,
1: I'm going to get you to read a bit of of one of the books, but before before we do that, just just one more thing from me. I, I mean, I've mentioned that I don't know how deliberate this was, but it does, you know, mislaid does have this feel of a, of, a, of a Shakespearean comedy, you know, mistaken identity as a brother and sister separated and then, you know, yeah. coming together and reunited. Yeah. Um, but this also reads like nothing else.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.